0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I am a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for tuning in for this week's episode. I want to give a special thank you at the beginning here to Ed Hackey for producing the show, to Rebecca Terhune for help with communications, James Steinbach for website assistance, and thanks to all of you who give regularly. If you have the opportunity, please head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a clear, headed, and objective five-star rating. And I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Onscript. Tertullian says this, Not that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, but in the water, under the witness of the angel, we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. For if in the mouth of three witnesses every word shall stand, well, through the benediction we have the same three as witnesses of our faith, whom we have as sureties of our salvation too. How much more does the number of the divine name suffice for the assurance of our hope likewise? Moreover, after the pledging both of the attestation of faith and the promise of salvation under three witnesses, there is added of necessity mention of the church, inasmuch as wherever there are three that is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there is the church, which is a body of three. I'm your host, Matthew Bates, Associate Professor of Theology at Quincy University in Illinois. Uh, And I have a guest today with me, Alan Street. Um, Our topic is Alan's new book, Caesar and the Sacrament, Baptism, a Rite of Resistance, uh, published by Cascade in 2018. Welcome to OnScript, Alan.
1: Thank you. It's good to be
0: here. Now, Alan, I think our listeners are sufficiently familiar with what we mean by Caesar um, in your title. But some will have less experience with sacraments, especially with the development of sacramental language that you trace for the reader. What are sacraments?
1: Well, I would say that depends on whether you are going to define the term according to church tradition, or whether you're going to look to the first century uh, Roman context.
0: Well, let's look to the first century Roman context, uh, and then maybe you can share something about how that developed later.
1: Okay. Well, originally, uh, The word sacramentum which we get our word sacrament from uh, was a legal term and it referred to the amount of money that a person had to uh, deposit with the court when they went to a trial if there were two parties involved for and against party uh, each had to deposit money with the court to show that they were earnest in other words this is not a frivolous case And so that was a pledge. That was their pledge to be faithful and honest in this trial. Whoever won got his earnest money back and the other one lost it. So that was its legal term. Julius Caesar, who was the ruler of Rome, 44 BCE, um, was the first person to mention sacramentum in relationship to the military. And he said a sacramentum was a pledge of a soldier and his faithfulness to serve Rome, even to the point of death. So he had to be obedient. He had to obey his his officers. He had to be faithful. So it was a serious term, sacramental. Then, when we get to the Empire period, uh, it referred to a soldier actually strengthening his pledge, not only to Rome but also to the emperor. His faithfulness was to Emperor and empire. And even to the point of death, that's the whole thing. There was no backing out once you made that pledge. And then after 25 years of service, the soldier may be granted citizenship, become a client of Caesar's, which means Caesar was his patron, and uh, would live in a colony. So there were some benefits to this lifelong commitment. So what happens is the Christians, the Christ followers of the first century, borrow this term. And they apply it to the act of baptism. They call it our sacramentum, our pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. So I would say that's the development in the first century and how it became a Christian term. Although it was not exclusively a Christian term.
0: And um, is it fair to say that we see an important transition with Tertullian uh, as we as I read him at the at the beginning? Um, is, is he a sort of a launching point uh, for taking this language in a new direction or do we wait till the time of Constantine? Um, I may be speaking a little bit beyond your area there. I don't know, but
1: you are. But I, I would say this much that uh, things are changing within the second century. Things are beginning to change. And, uh, but one thing that Tertullian did is he uh, talked about the Christian sacramentum and contrasted it with a soldier's sacramentum or Pledge of Allegiance. So he, that contrast is still being used. That contrast and comparison is still being used by the time of, of the time of Tertullian.
0: Yeah, and as obviously sacramental theology uh, eventually develops in the church, um, we have the Catholic Church settling on seven sacraments, and uh, it's formalized as as a system, and salvation is understood uh, especially to be connected with the sacrament of baptism, and then if, of course if you commit a mortal sin of, of penance or uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, as that's called uh, today, um, and those are understood to be um, functioning um, by virtue of the sacramental act itself. So um, there's there's obviously a complex development of tradition there, and it's good to kind of go back into the first century and think this through. Let me just tell you a little bit um, briefly more about um, Alan Street. Uh, He is Senior Research Professor of Biblical Theology at Criswell College in Dallas, Uh, He is also the author of another book, uh, Subversive Meals, which was published by Pickwick in 2013. And um, at least in your introduction to this book, um, you mentioned that this was in some ways a a supplement or a companion uh, or a continuation of the work that you began there. Um, Could you speak a little bit more to how this um, book has emerged from your own life context, from your research, however you want to frame that?
1: Well, I actually came to biblical theology late in life. So uh... Originally, I started as a practical theologian and was a professor of evangelism, (laughs) Um, and that was during my first round at Criswell College. Uh, I left the the school and planted a church, and I pastored for 10 years, and I began to do exegesis, verse-by-verse exegesis, and it just opened up the vistas further. Began to develop theology, mainly systematic theology, but just exegesis. I began to develop sort of more of a biblical theology through that. I began to see everything didn't jive. It didn't harmonize. I tried to figure it all out. But then I came back to Criswell College, and that's where I've been for the past 20 years. And uh, I moved over into New Testament and uh, worked on a, a doctor's degree, a second doctorate at the University of Wales. And there I was introduced to a level of scholarship that I wasn't used to. I remember writing my first chapter and the, uh, my supervisor looked at it and he said, well, he said, it's fine, uh, but you need to use some primary sources. Well, I hadn't read a primary source in my life (laughs) except the Bible. So I had to learn to become a scholar. So that changed everything. And I moved into biblical theology so, my dissertation at Wales was the first book, Subversive Meals. It wasn't titled that, but this is a redoing of that. Uh, as I began to think through the issues, I thought, well, let's look at baptism as an anti imperial act of resistance. I hadn't seen anything on it, so I decided to start researching that, and that's how this book developed. I'm right now working on a third book on. Um, subversive songs or songs of resistance which uh shows how the worship itself was an act of resistance it's there's always a pro and a con when you're dealing with anti-imperialism you have to make sure you're not talking about trying to overthrow the Roman government through violence and turn it into a Christian you know empire uh you're simply saying that you're for the kingdom of God and by virtue of that you are resisting Rome's agenda so that's how that's all develops.
0: Well, that's that's a helpful segue, really, um, because you, you speak of baptism not only as the sacrament, um, but frame it as a rite of resistance. Um, what did Second Temple Jews and early Christians need to resist and what modes could that resistance take? Um, obviously, there are a lot of different ways one can resist something. Right. Um, and yeah, let's go ahead and start there. And then maybe we think about how baptism fits into that.
1: Right. Well, first of all, Jews and Christ followers, I would say, uh, lived under Roman domination. Rome was a domination system. It controlled people's lives in many ways. Meals were one of the ways they controlled their lives. You know, they put you, you went to a certain kind of a meal, you sat at a certain space, and certain people were invited, certain people weren't. Everybody knew their place. So the Jews and Christ followers lived under Roman oppression. And no one wants to be enslaved. No one wants to be uh, subservient to another person, another people, and so uh, what? Ha- and let me just add this too. This is important: is that when Rome took over a nation, it it retained the native leaders of that nation. They simply switched their allegiance to Rome. Some mistake that we made when we went into Iraq. Went to Iraq, freed the people, didn't retain the police department, didn't retain the military fired them all, and then took over. And there was immediate resistance because we didn't retain the native elites. So Rome would retain the native elites. In this case, it would have been in Palestine, it would have been the priesthood, the the Jewish leaders. And they simply switched their allegiance and gave, it, gave their allegiance to Rome. They collected taxes for Rome. They did Rome's bidding. So the resistance came in, at two levels. Jews resisted their leaders. (laughs) They resisted their leaders in two ways. Some withdrew. That's what you have with the Essenes, the Qumran community. Withdrew, started their own, followed their own beliefs apart from the temple. You had zealots who tried to overthrow Rome's control of Israel through use of violence. So you have a non-resistance by withdrawal. You have violent resistance (laughs) like the zealots and the bandits. And, uh, and likewise, the Christians resisted when they got together and proclaimed Jesus Lord, ultimate Lord, which meant that Caesar was not ultimate Lord. So their resistance usually took place within the confines of a worship service. They weren't resisting out in public. They weren't spitting on the images of Caesar, you know. But when they got together, they were no longer stratified socially. There was no longer Jew or Gentile. There was no longer slave or free. They began to live according to an egalitarian ethic, sort of a what I would call a kingdom ethic. Uh, and so that was very resistant to Rome. So that's why I say their songs were resistant. Baptism pledged their allegiance to Christ, that was an act of resistance. Uh, eating a meal where everybody just reclined and everybody got the same food and everyone was invited to the same meal. That was an act of resistance. So you have these different types of acts of resistance. Now where Christians resisted publicly was when the gospel was being preached. That was a public act. And it's one thing to do it behind closed doors. It's another thing to do it publicly. The moment Jesus overturned the money tables, he was dead by the end of the week that was they saw that as a public act of resistance when paul preached the gospel especially in gentile territories that would have been seen as an act of resistance in fact in Acts 17 it says that uh, they, they they're hunting for paul and the accusation is that these guys are preaching a law contrary to that of caesar notice a law contrary to that of caesar they say there's another king jesus wow that's, that's, very, that's, that's a resistant act. Now, now imagine saying this, you're giving your allegiance to Jesus and not Caesar, okay? And you're calling people to be baptized and pledge their allegiance to Jesus and not Caesar. Uh, how is Rome viewing this? Well, they're viewing the person paying their allegiance to a guy that Rome deemed an enemy of the state and was executed as an enemy of the state. And he is dead. <clears throat> what in the world are you doing pledging your allegiance to some dead enemy of the state? That's how Rome sees it. It would be like the early Americans, uh, pledging their allegiance to, uh, Benedict Arnold. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You'd say, oh, are you crazy? Or, uh, Christians in, uh, Iran, Pledging their allegiance to the shawl of Iran when the Ayatollah is in charge. What are you crazy? You know, or or the Ch- communist Chinese pledging their allegiance to Chiang Kai Shek. Those movements wouldn't last long. They'd be deemed resistant. So that's what I would say. Why Christianity was was resistant, and that's that's how they resisted. And,
0: yeah I, I appreciate how you sort of give the broad brush strokes of um different ways of resisting withdrawal or um subversive acts of um of, um, you know, worship, um, could be a, f- a form of that. It makes me think of James Scott's work that he's done on um, resistance in different forms it can take, and especially the ways in which there can be, um, certain codes that are manipulated or even humor or, um, things like that that can be used as, as modes of resistance too, as it can get down to, um, uh, the very fine um, level detail. Um, and so as we think about, um, baptism as an, an act of resistance and or a right of resistance, um, there are a number of different contexts. and You've spoken to them briefly, but I think it might be helpful if you unpack a little bit further on them. Um, uh, how did um, the oath of allegiance that was um, uh, uh, part of the uh, early baptismal uh, rituals, how was that informed by a military context um, and maybe also the imperial context, the patronage system? Um, can you unpack a little more uh, of that for us?
1: Yeah, first, let me say that when a believer was baptized, they were pledging their allegiance to a king and a kingdom. Therefore, it's a political act. It's not just a spiritual act. Uh, there's nothing spiritual in the Roman Empire. It's, everything is connected to politics. So, uh, and the early church was making its pledge of allegiance to an exalted king, one who was above Rome. Rome claimed to have killed him, and the believers were saying, No, no, he's come back to life and God has installed him as Lord over the entire universe for all times. That means Rome's days are numbered, you know. It is totally this this anti-imperial act. I think we miss that when we just because we bring our theology we bring a lot of preconceived ideas. To the table when we're dealing with baptism and Lord's Supper. Yeah,
0: baptism is a religious rite in our in our culture. That's a rite of initiation for established religion, and um, we have a separation, you know, in, in terms of spheres of how we think about politics and religion and so on and so forth. Sure.
1: So yeah. when it comes to the military um, and uh, the imperial cult, the cult of Caesar, uh, and to the whole issue of patronage, they're all linked together in this pledge of allegiance that the believers are making to Jesus as Lord. So imagine this. The Philippian jailer who previously was a Roman in Roman military and pledged his allegiance to Caesar until death. And now has retired, been given a plum job as a jailer. Caesar's his patron. He's been given this position. And now he hears this gospel. And he pledges his allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Man, that deals with the military oath. He had already made that kind of oath. This deals with patronage. He is now turning away from Caesar as his patron. And he's going to look not to Jupiter and Caesar as his patron. But he's now going to look to God, the Jewish God, and Jesus Christ as his patrons. And he's going to depend upon them to take care of all of his needs. We have no idea what happens to him because the story not told.
0: Yeah. What do you think it means to him? What do you think it means to him whenever, uh, you know, Paul calls on him to, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved or to, you know, to give allegiance to the Lord Jesus and be saved. What do you think the saved part meant to him? Uh, uh, rescued from framework? death
1: in the sense that his prisoners were gone. He's probably going to pay you the price. And he says, <laughs> don't do that. Jesus will save you. Even if Rome kills you, you will be resurrected. So he, there's this resurrection, in this ultimate kingdom. And I think that was a key message that the that the Christians, you know, proclaimed. So don't worry about, don't worry about Rome. You know, Jesus, yeah, Rome took care of Jesus and God took care, care of Jesus. <laughs> That's in a different way, he raised him from the dead. He'll raise you from the dead.
0: Yeah, so with salvation specifically from death, do you think, then that was probably mostly in view. Right.
1: See, it is. I think everything, this is going off the t- topic, but <clears throat> I think uh, everything about Christianity is earth-related, not heaven-related. We have this concept that salvation is going to heaven after we die. Whereas, you don't see that in the scriptures. That's not the story that's being told. Uh, even, Even in Genesis, the story is God creates humankind, God creates Adam, the first man, out of the earth. He creates him for the earth. And creating for heaven creates him for the earth he will be sustained by the earth. He is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He is to take dominion over the earth. There's the kingdom concept, dominion over the earth. He and Eve, it's an egalitarian rule of man and woman over the earth. When they sin, it's an act of rebellion against God's kingdom. They listen to Satan instead of God it's a Benedict Arnold type thing in a sense. Uh, and Satan sort of, now they have a second voice to listen to. He becomes sort of the God of this world, if you want to use that, that language. And so um, God says, and you will return to the earth. But the hope of the gospel is that there's a resurrection from the earth. <clears throat> so, and it will be a return when Christ returns, you inherit the earth. At least that's the language So I see everything in earthly terms and in political terms, kingdom terms versus the kingdoms of this world terms. So even when I do funeral services, I don't preach about heaven. I preach about resurrection.
0: Yeah. New creation, resurrection. Well, as we think about um, sort of the, you know, the on the ground meanings of these these kinds of things, if baptism isn't like a religious rite, you know, particularly um, in the, the world of the Roman Empire. Um, well, people were getting dunked before John the Baptist comes and dunks people, right? Um, what was the meaning of baptism whenever we sort of, um, we step out of our our frameworks, would see it as a, a, a initiation ritual, right, that's connected to, to um, becoming a, a Christian. Um, this is what you do when you become a Christian, you, you get baptized. Um, what kind of meanings um, seem like they were available for baptism um, that early Christians could have borrowed from, used, reshaped, Um, that seem like they're important backgrounds that you think um, informed John the Baptist's actions and then ultimately Jesus's?
1: Well, the Jews did practice uh, purification rites, water rituals. Uh, According to the Old Testament practices, they believed that they could be defiled by the world just, just by living daily life. They got dirty, they rubbed shoulders with Gentiles, they... Touched dead things by mistake, and they became defiled, and therefore, in order to uh, be involved in religious affairs, if you want to use that, temple affairs, they had to be ritually purified they didn 't literally get purified, but it was a God deemed them purified okay. so we do have water rituals. The Qumran community also practiced water rituals on a regular basis, and in, in the book, I talk about banis the baptizer, this man who baptized himself a thousand times a day, constantly trying to keep clean, you know, but this wasn't uh, a baptism for remission of sin. So it seems like John was very familiar with water rites, uh, But he, and he may have been influenced by the Essenes, the Qumran community, but the scripture indicates that uh, John senses that he has a mission from God and his water ritual is to call the nation of Israel to repentance because they have moved away from the kingdom ethic. The, uh, they have not been faithful to the covenant. This is why they're in this mess. They need to break with their allegiance to Rome. They need to break with their allegiance to just the way things are being done and return to the kingdom of God ethic. So it's a repentance. That's why even repentance is a political construct in a sense. It's more than just, I forget, I'm getting you know, grit of my sins. The sin is that you've aligned yourself with the world. It's not that you're a liar, that you lied and you cheated and you stole. It's that you're, you're acting like the world does. This is how the world operates. That's how God operates. You God is your patron. You need just to trust Him. He'll take care of you. And they haven't done it. They haven't taken care of the poor. They haven't done anything that God required. So John is calling them back to that. And if they do that, God will forgive them of that sin. And they'll be restored. So the kingdom will be restored to Israel. You know, they will no longer be that's that's the key.
0: Yeah, it's to see it in socio political terms rather than just, you know, sort of like personal, personal acts of transgression against God. Right.
1: It's, and so when they say, well, what does this mean? He says, uh, well, if you have two shirts, you know, and somebody else doesn't have another one, give it to them. Uh, it's practicing this covenant faithfulness, taking care of the poor and the widows and, and uh, forgiving debts, you know. And when Jesus comes along, he says, you know, and this is what I'm doing I'm, you know, I'm preaching this gospel to the poor. I'm restoring the kingdom to Israel. The kingdom is linked to the the gospel is linked to the kingdom and baptism is linked to the kingdom. And and that's why... Taking
0: care of the poor was a political act like uh, because Yahweh is the king of the covenant. That's right. And,
1: that's exactly yeah. right. And so when you pledge your allegiance to God, in this case the Jews would be pledging their allegiance to God through John the Baptist in preparation for the kingdom's arrival and when the Christ followers pledged their allegiance to God through Christ because they sensed the kingdom of God had arrived already through the exaltation of Christ. Uh, you know, it was a political act. And just think for a second, think another colony, let's say like the colony of Corinth. Uh, what would it mean to be baptized in Corinth? Corinth. Now, again, that's a colony. Many people were Roman citizens in that, in that colony. It now means I'm no longer going to go to the meals at the temple, at the, at the Roman temples. That's why Paul says you can't eat at the table of demons and the table of God at the same time. It is a break with that political life and allegiance and, and giving allegiance to, to Christ and his kingdom. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, just think about this. What nations is he talking about? Is he talking about Africa, America? No, he's not talking about that. That's not the, he's talking about the nations that were under the control of Rome. He says go and make disciples of these people that are under Rome's authority right now and how are you to do it? Baptize them Say that baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I'm telling you to observe. Teach them to obey me in a sense, you know. And so this is really a political, this is a political act. I wrote I wrote an article in one of the, uh, for some, for a blog, uh, University of Arizona blog, and it was called, something along the line of baptism as a political act of subversion. And that's what I would see this as. Now we've lost that of course, but I once, when I, when I wrote my uh, dissertation or thesis on, on subversive meals, and I said it was subversive and they were saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they were not raising a cup to Caesar, but to Jesus. My supervisor said, when you take the Lord's supper, let me ask you a question. Now, this is going to date me a little bit, but he said, when you take the Lord's Supper, do you think of George W. Bush? And I said, well, what do you mean do I think of George W. Bush? He said, well, that's what you're saying the early Christians did. When they took that, ate that supper, and they lifted a cup to Jesus, they were saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They were thinking about the leader of the Roman Empire, and it was an act of subversion. And I said, I said no, I've never thought of George W. Bush. But that's how we should be thinking. We should be thinking of the kingdoms of this world, of which all nations are and the kingdom of Christ and through our meals and through our baptism these are these are acts of obedience in a sense mm. this is how we
0: I'm going to yeah I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit from your book. Um, it might give, uh, you know, the audience a chance to hear a little bit of what, what your book is like and sounds like. But I thought this part um, was particularly important for framing John the Baptist's ministry, especially when we think of other people who are doing similar kind of prophetic actions, right? We have Thutis, you know, are running around uh, doing things, for instance, in the wilderness that are similar to what John the Baptist does. Uh, but here um, from your page 41, if the baptizer's ministry, John the Baptist, was located in the region of As the Gospel of John suggests, then his ministry was conducted east of the Jordan. In such case, each baptism might have been viewed as a prophetic drama, with the candidates entering the water on one side of the Jordan and emerging on the other side to re-enter Judea. Symbolic of covenant renewal, purification, and conquest, uh, kind of echoing the Joshua narrative, right, as you cross over the Jordan River, which was obviously a a political action, right, and that uh, spoke of of restoration and even perhaps the need for, it's interesting, people who are Jews to come outside of, you know, um, the land proper, right, cross back through the Jordan and become Jews again or whatever it might mean, right, and um, there's some sort of symbolic renewal of Judaism that seems to be present there. So I thought that was a powerful um, way of reminding um, that, you know, John the Baptist, it's not just his words, it's his actions, right, that matter.
1: Right, because John the Baptist is a prophet, and the prophets not only proclaimed, they acted out certain (laughs) events, sort of like an acted parable or whatever you want to call it, you know.
0: Yeah, So as we move forward with John's ministry there, I mean, obviously, um, a a climactic moment is um, when he baptizes Jesus. And um, I thought that was um, some of your most interesting and important work in the book had to do with... um, uh, your, your exploration of, of Roman practices surrounding uh, the emperor's uh, ascension and um, the selection of an emperor and how that uh, created uh, how that was connected to various um, auguries and signs around birds. Um, can you walk us through some of that um, data on Roman augury, why it might be important for understanding Jesus's baptism?
1: Well, according to Roman tradition, legend, I guess, mythology, whatever you want to call it. Um, their historians believe that romulus was chosen ruler of rome over his brother remus through an avian sign which was the landing of an eagle on his shoulder and that was a sign from the god jupiter that this was his choice so from that time on their practice was to choose emperors or rulers through the use of augury which is the um, omens, I guess omens or signs. In this case, it would be the uh, study of the flight of birds. So they actually formed a group of a college of augurs, people who actually observed the flight of birds and other things. <clears throat> and so when an emperor was chosen, they would all if they didn't know which one it would be, they looked for a bird sign. And we know from Suetonius and others that uh, uh, Augustus or Octavian was chosen as the emperor or confirmed, I shouldn't say chosen, confirmed to be emperor based on uh, augury. So he was made, and, and the word augury itself, we we still use that. We come over and we take that and we expand it and we call uh, when a president is elected, and he's put in office, his inauguration. So we still use that kind of language today. <clears throat> but originally it had to do with omens and and the flight of birds. Um, so the Romans believed that the eagle was the kingmaker because the eagle was fastest, uh, the strongest. It could ascend to the highest points, get closest to the god Jupiter. And then Jupiter could send that eagle down to... Reveal his will will to the people. And that's what he would do when he was choosing an emperor. So when Jesus is baptized, uh, Luke talks about a bird coming upon him. He says it's the Holy Spirit, but he, he uses bird or avian language.
0: Yeah. Well, and you pointed out in the book that um, Luke actually has an addition beyond Matthew and Mark that it specifically adds the in bodily form language. Right. And that was something you really keyed in on is that Luke, in addition, the in bodily form um, as something that it seems like our um, Luke is wanting to say, pay attention to this. I think so. Right. Because the
1: other writers talk about the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And that's like a dove is an adverbial form, which is describing the descent. What was the descent like? It's like a dove coming down. But Luke adds in bodily form, and that is an adjectival phrase, which is describing the dove. The dove was in bodily form when it came down. Well, what comes down in what bird comes down in bodily form? Well, in Rome, eagles would come down in bodily form and choose who the next emperor, the king, was. So he's describing avian sign, and what I think he's doing now. This is. I can't prove this. Okay, that's, that's the one thing. But like you said, it is very intriguing. Is that he is basically saying God has chosen Jesus as his son. That's kingly language. And he is confirming it through an avian sign, which was the descent of, the, of a dove in bodily form. So for Luke's audience, when they hear that language and it triggers something and makes them think, oh, that's how the emperor is chosen ah, Caesar has a challenger. The God of Israel is setting up his own king, a universal king. And, uh, you know, people are pledging their allegiance to him. So I think that, and and the fact that it's a dove is in contrast to an eagle. An eagle is swift, an eagle is is powerful. It it swoops down and it takes its prey by force. Where the dove is just the opposite. The dove is gentle, it's kind, it's nonviolent. And I think this is, This could be a literary device Luke is using. I can't say that for sure. Maybe it didn't happen exactly like that, but Luke is putting it in those terms for his readers. will will relate to what's happening in that baptism. But uh, it's similar to Jesus coming in to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Whereas I don't know if you're familiar with the Crossan's book, The First Easter, where he has Pilate coming in on a white stallion and uh he has Jesus coming in on the donkey from different directions uh and that's at that contrast so i think it's something similar
0: to that yeah no that's that's powerful um well let's let's uh that's i think um some yeah some real good meat to chew on um let's let's uh let's change the pace a little bit do something a little bit different let's let's go to a speed round if you don't mind uh as uh these then are kind of questions that are um You know, like just give a, you know, kind of 15 seconds to each kind of question sort of thing. And uh, it's kind of more of a a get to know you sort of thing. Um, So uh, first one, do you believe in ghosts? I
1: believe in the Holy Ghost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Beyond the Holy Ghost. Do you believe in ghosts? No. No. Yeah. Um, Do you like to go camping?
1: I do not like to go camping. Any hotel that has trees outside the window would be camping for me.
0: (laughs) Are you willing to sing a song for me right now? I'm willing, but
1: I probably won't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How about Jesus Loves Me? You do that one? Yeah, sure. I cut put the pressure on.
1: Okay. I'm not a good singer, but here it goes. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All right, you will Good job. Most most people
0: won't do it. I'm, I'm pleased. All right. The scariest thing about growing older is?
1: I have no fears about growing older. Because I believe in the resurrection. I, I, the resurrection is key for me. No matter what happens, you know there's a resurrection.
0: Well, it's, I, think, I think for me, I, speaking personally, I, I always find it frightening to lose my mind, even then. You know, like, <laughs> like if I was to get Alzheimer's, it just seems like, it's, it's like maybe it's you because know I'm it. a scholar and too much of my identity. I, I guess, but it still freaks me out. But it shouldn't. I, I, I want to I have your, your uh, courage. Um, all right. So if, if you were offered a free space flight to the moon and back— Would you take it? No. No. Uh, If you're at my house for dinner, what's one thing you hope I don't serve you? Liver. Liver. I don't think I've ever eaten liver. I don't even know what it tastes like. So It must be horrible. Everyone says it is. All right. Well, uh, uh, one more. And this is one we always ask everybody. uh, And this one's a little more serious. But what's the most important theology or biblical studies book written in the last 50 years, in your opinion? most important in the last 50 years. And it could be personal, like maybe not just to the academy, it could be to you personally.
1: I'm not sure what the f- most important is. So, so a couple that I like, or one that I really like would be uh, Christ in Time, which would have been Oscar Colman. I think that's sort of a pace setting book. So that changes things.
0: Yeah, I did read that a long time ago. I don't, I don't remember it very well, speaking about losing your mind. Um, but Yeah, it didn't have the same impact on me, apparently, as it had on you. (laughs) I think I read it quickly. I was for a research purpose, and I was after an answer, but didn't probably ponder. Good. Okay, well, I don't think we've ever had anyone answer that one. That's good to get a fresh one. Um, We get a lot of uh, E.P. Sanders, a lot of John Barclay lately. But uh, Oscar Kuhlman. that's great. Okay, um, well, let's we'll, we'll jump back into uh, in, back into the thick of things here then. Um, so one of the things that's important about, I think, um, thinking about the first century meaning of baptism is obviously it was an individual event in the sense that in, individuals participated in it. But um, can, can we move beyond that and think about um it's corporate significance, right? And how does that specifically link to um, Israel's political vision, its national hope? And here I'm thinking about your your chapter, especially as you link that into resurrection and um, did some Old Testament work.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that uh, baptism is linked to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. So therefore it's not about the individual, but you get to get in on it in a sense. And the nations are going to get to get in on it. And that includes us. Um, It has eschatological implications because of that. It's not just about me going to heaven when I die. It's not about my own salvation. It's about an end time plan, a big God's plan, the restoration of the kingdom, which will eventually take over the entire earth. Um, In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, uh, they talk about Israel coming back to life. A kingdom being restored. So in Ezekiel, you know, when he tells Ezekiel, uh, gives him a vision, he says, what do you see? He says, dead bones. And he tells him to breathe on those bones and come back, uh, breathe on those bones. And he said, now what's happening? They're coming back. So what you have is these bones represent Israel, which is dead. And God is raising them back, raising Israel up again. He's restoring the kingdom to Israel. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says, repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a resurrection of this of God's plan of Israel being kingdom being restored. You know, so it's bigger than than the individual. And then when Jesus comes, he does basically the same thing, says it's at hand or it's arrived in the person of Jesus.
0: So corporate Israel is dead. And um, and you as part of corporate Israel are dead too, right? There's a resurrection then, um, but um, the resurrection of Jesus then as sort of the first fruits, as Paul puts it then, of of the resurrection of the many.
1: Israel right? being, Israel is being raised. Jesus is raised. He's the first of Israel, in a sense, being raised. Yeah. It's happening.
0: But I like how you connect that to national vision, right? That it, the nation itself was dead, right? And we see that as uh, intimately connected with um, with. Um, uh, resurrection language the restoration of the nation right is is really the origin of our resurrection ideas we we tend to focus on the individual miracle right without thinking very much about um the way in which the 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 meaning of the individual miracle was not like a one-off neat act of god of new creation but one that um, was an announcement of uh, the restoration of the nation um so uh, yeah that's very helpful um as we as we kind of think then about, um, you know, kind of moving to uh, thinking about, like, how does this view of baptism that you're unearthing in the first century context mesh or not mesh well with certain kinds of um, denominational or ecclesial expressions today, um, one of the most important questions that divides Christians still today is how the sacraments function, Right, we have the ex opere operato um, view of Catholics, and um, and frankly, um, some Protestants um, would move in that direction as well. Right, that it's the sacramental act itself being performed, like the baptism itself is a- efficacious. Right, um, your results would seem to uh, disagree with that. Is that fair to say that um, your results don't 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 move in that direction? Um, how would you then? Um, What's the problem, I guess, with ex opere operato? And, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll certainly say my sympathies are with you. I, I, I find that kind of idea problematic as well, as I think there's some New Testament data that would suggest that's not how it works. Um, so, yeah, why don't, why don't you go ahead and, and chime in, though, and, and as you, you've written this marvelous book-length study that exposes all of this, so uh, what would you have to say?
1: Well, I guess it depends on how you see baptism. Do you see baptism as a human act or a divine act? And I would say baptism itself is a human act. So uh, repent and be baptized. That's what John calls people to do. It's what Peter called people to do: repent and be baptized. That's the human side of salvation. Uh, He says that. So that's a precursor to forgiveness of sins, which only God can do. And. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is also the divine act. So you see that human side, which is baptism. The divine side is the uh, result of our pledge of allegiance. Um, But what I want to say is that if uh, baptism, apart from God doing something, that's what leads to Constantinianism. That's what leads to uh, Christendom is everybody's getting baptized. Everyone's a Christian. Everyone, but, but there's no change in anything. The government stays the same. I mean, it's just different people are in charge, but they are power players. So um, in the scriptures, and I have to always go back to the first century, because that's, that's where I live. I'm not really good in, once I get outside the first century. I'm, I limit myself there. Uh, is that in Acts, you have people who are baptized, and Peter and John come there and, you know, it takes them a while to get there. It's not going to happen like the next day. They didn't fly in, you I know. They in Samaria uh, then. Yeah, that's right, Samaria. And so they, they fly, they come in, and uh, they realize something's wrong. Uh, uh, they lay hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. They are made whole. Now, there's a lot of theological reasons why they may have done this or why they may not have done it. Uh, but there's an example where baptism produced absolutely nothing, in a sense. Um, you have people like Judas, who probably was baptized. You know,
0: uh, I thought an interesting uh, one that I hadn't really thought about that you brought up was Saul's baptism. Um, you know, when Saul is baptized by Ananias, um, and uh, he um, it says specifically that like he's instructed to call upon the name of the Lord himself, right? That it's not the it's not a priest calling upon the name of the Lord as part of the baptismal formula, but it's, uh, it's Saul himself who is to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, then he has hands laid upon then he has him hands later. Laid upon yeah. Him. yeah, so yeah. it suggests yeah. that he was to call upon the name of the Lord as his oath of allegiance to the king, right? And so it, it does, um, I think, highlight the um, yeah, the, it's not about the sacramental action itself, right, um, that, um, that is performed by a mediator in that case, um, but about the person who's being baptized making the appropriate profession seems to be what, what, what's
1: right. Then on the divine side, you've got the regeneration. But I think this, when Peter stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says, repent, be baptized for the mission, you sent, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told when they get the Holy Spirit after he preaches in that particular passage. But we do know that in Acts 10 with Cornelius, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, you want to call this an act of regeneration, before he is baptized, before he's yeah. baptized.
0: When he's still speaking, so, right? Before, yeah. Right. Before he's still he's speaking. Yeah, uh-huh. And then it's interesting later on when, whenever there's uh, um, that. Peter explains why his decision uh, in Acts 15, he very explicitly says that it was because that um, it was by, by faith, their hearts have been cleansed uh, by the Holy spirit. So baptism cannot be withheld. And he specifically mentions faith, I think twice in that passage, right. Saying that it was, um, you know, on, on the basis of that, right. That baptism cannot be withheld. So it's an interesting episode. Right. And
1: I, you know, I think that Peter originally, maybe on the day of Pentecost, he thinks that this is the formula, repent, be baptized, your sins will be forgiven. You'll get the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, uh, it doesn't happen that way. I think it it's him, Caught off guard. You know, uh, when he goes to Samaria, they've been baptized. They didn't get the Holy Spirit. Another surprise. So I think what he thought the pattern was didn't happen that way. And it really caught him off guard. Now, I don't know for that for sure, but it's what it seems to indicate that there's a
0: a surprise. Hey, we got there and they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, what's going on? It seems like you know? Luke is deliberately in Acts articulating irregularities to help inform our our understanding of the relationship between baptism and the Holy Spirit. Um, and also because we, we have instances in which, you know, people are baptized. Um, we would have Simon who's baptized um, and uh, his heart's not right with the Lord. Later on, when we get, um, you know, the disciples of John the Baptist and Apollos, right, um, they have um, also received the baptism of John, right, and, or, or some some other deficient understanding that doesn't fully understand Jesus as the Messiah, right? And it's only as uh, they come to confess Jesus as the Messiah and are baptized into His name, right, that we we have the Holy Spirit given. So it seems like there's, um, yeah, a deliberate, programmatic, like articulation of some of these irregularities to partly inform a proper understanding of the way in which um, faith, salvation, and baptism all interface.
1: I believe so. You know, when Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, uh, as an example of a person who's been baptized, maybe even has the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the whole story is, but he has now switched allegiance. He's gone back under the, under the uh, umbrella of the world and he's going to be judged. Paul says, you know, yeah, uh, (laughs) that's a whole new issue. Yeah,
0: yeah. um... Well, and uh, this is a, obviously it's a related issue, but it's one that has been very controversial in a lot of conversation, and it would be the relationship between water and spirit baptism. You do some work on that. Um, how, how can we best articulate the relationship between water baptism and spirit baptism? Um, obviously, in Pentecostal circles, especially, this has been a very hot topic. Um, how would you nuance the relationship between water and spirit baptism?
1: The way I would see it is I would make the distinction between John's baptism and Christian baptism. So John's baptism was a water baptism. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, he preaches a water baptism too. Repent and be baptized. That means in water. No doubt about that. And here's the result. You will, and it's in the name of Jesus. That's what makes the difference. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. So I, that's the distinction I would make. Uh, the difference between those two baptisms. Christian baptism is you get the eschatological spirit which incorporates you into the kingdom of god whereas pentecost and water baptism and spirit baptism in the sense of
0: pentecostalism i'm not really uh ready to speak on that yeah, i don't yeah, think it's yeah. no, <laughs> fine yeah, and I think that um, you would you would tend to think though that ordinarily water baptism it uh, coincides with spirit baptism, um, but but that's not necessarily the case, right? As we see evidence in Acts so that that's not those things are not always united.
1: Yeah, in, in modern times you'd have to say, well, why did they not get the Holy Spirit? Well, that's what he had to say in the first century. Peter said, why didn't they get the Holy Spirit? And uh, I can't answer that question that's that's a question that's imponderable yeah you
0: know? yeah well you get you get to in Pentecostal circles sometimes ideas of second baptisms of the spirit or or things like that that are um yeah
1: now I think Paul's very clear that there's one baptism one Lord, so he would see it as water and spirit being one in a sense you know. At least theoretically.
0: (laughs) Well, time's flying along here. We probably should start wrapping up. So, uh, here's a, here's a, I have a couple of final wrap up questions, and they have to do, um, especially with with practical things. Um, So, how about this? If you had the authority, Um, You are, um, I guess, you know, the Pope of all Christendom, united under you, okay? Um, Probably not a good thing, but hey, you get the chance, okay? And you get to prescribe best baptismal practices for the entire Christendom. Everybody's going to do whatever you say. Um, You are the authority on baptism. Um, What sort of practical guide rails are you going to put in place? Um, What kind of specific details of who, how, when people should be baptized? What kind of guidelines are you going to give to the church about how to do baptism?
1: Uh, I can only be the Pope in the first century. (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) I have to limit myself to the first century practices. So I'm more comfortable being descriptive of what's going on in the first century rather than, let's say, prescriptive for what we should do in this century. But I'll say this much. I would like to see the church include baptism in the gospel message. That seems to be what they did in the first century. So Peter says, you know, baptism is an appeal to God uh, with a good conscience or a clear conscience. It is a good conscience pledge of allegiance to God. So um, I would like to see that included. And so I think baptism, in a sense, was the invitation that... The response in baptism was the, invi- the the call to be baptized was the invitation. Being baptized was the response to the invitation in the first century. So I would like to see that. Um, I would like to see. Uh, so would
0: you be in favor of um, you know immediate response baptism, so that like you know the the, the pastor or the the priest they're up there um, sharing the gospel in their sermon. They give an invitation. They say anybody who wants to. Uh, acknowledge Jesus as the ultimate king. Uh, repent from their uh, their previous allegiances and follow him uh, and uh, and begin to align their life with the jesus way um, there 's a baptismal font right there. And uh, um, or would you, um, you know, obviously, the the early church tradition, as it began to emerge, um, uh, uh, slowed down that process and wanted to put a period of fasting in place and other things. Would you say, no, nope, hop right in the right in the tank and uh, and get baptized right now? Or would you want to delay it in some way?
1: Well, it's a really important question, I think, is a good question. Uh, included in this gospel message, which is always uh, Account your cost element. They didn't, they didn't need to s- explain what the cost was in the first century. <laughs> Everybody knew what the cost was. It could cost you your life. But in this century, it's a different story. I would say yes. Immediate baptism, if I'm preaching this gospel in North Korea, they understand very clearly what it's going to cost them to make that kind of commitment. In the United States, I'd say, no, I'm going to have to explain what the cost is of following Christ and so on and so forth. Then I would also want to have a strong discipleship and teaching ministry to follow up so that they don't are just baptized. And now I'm a Christian. And then also another element I'd want to include is it would be uh, church discipline. So if you are moving away, you're going to be brought back into the fold, you know, discipled even more. You know, because I think all that has to be in there in the Western society and North Korea, probably not, you know, <laughs> Does that make
0: sense? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying as I think there's a tension that everyone feels who who is a pastor or shares the gospel between the desire to see people make a decision, right, and to to change their lives and the urgency of the absolute urgency of that, but also, yeah, a fear that they don't understand what they're really getting into and that um it's going to be just like the you know the seed cast along the path or whatever. So, yeah,
1: I think also that uh, the reason for this is that we do not preach the gospel of the kingdom,
0: yeah, I do think there's a lot more kingdom preaching than there used to be, and that's encouraging isn't it? that yeah, it is yeah well how about how about then, um, as a final question for you, is I think a lot of our um, listeners are um, going to be part of a you know a, a church that practices believers' baptism, a lot aren't. They're going to be churches that have an infant baptism tradition, um, and that's probably not going to change for them, at least not immediately, unless they decide to hop on out or whatever. Um, But if they're hearing whatever wisdom that you're sharing and are entering into the first century context and and maybe persuaded, um, are there baby steps that um, people who are part of even like high liturgical traditions that practice infant baptism can take toward best practices even within that? right, while well, retaining infant baptism, let's say, um, how would you encourage them to have a more allegiant, more political, more whatever it might be you might want to encourage them toward um, baptismal ceremony?
1: Well, that's a hard question, but I don't believe they're going to change, and so I would not try to change them. You know, Anabaptists tried to change people, and they didn't work in the the reformers killed them, so I would say <laughs>
0: that's not yeah, a good problem. They, they got a different sort of baptism, right? They got an entirely different sort of... They got the third see,
1: baptism. That's, that's, the right. that's right. So I would say that uh, if I were a priest or a pastor of a church, I would want to emphasize to the parents and the godparents the seriousness of their pledge of allegiance to make certain this child is raised in the faith. I think... You have Godparents standing up there making this statement. It means absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean any, it means about as much as people getting baptized and making that a frivolous commitment to Christ. That needs to be a serious commitment uh, and I think they need to be counseled before they ever stand up there. I think that would be a one good thing that way we 're certain that the child is going to be raised into the faith. Second thing would be a very rigorous uh, Christian education in that church, where that child uh, is is taught what it means to live according to kingdom ethics, what it means to be a Christ follower, not just a speaker, you know somebody who professes faith in Christ uh, then at some point it, I would have the child confirm their baptism that 's what they do anyway, but again, it would be a conscious act. Of saying, yeah, this is the life I want to live from now on. I've been raised this way; I understand it. Now, as an adult, young adult, I'm going to make this commitment on my own. So the confirmation, therefore, becomes like the first century baptism in the sense that it's it is a pledge of allegiance. And then, of course, then you, then you'd have again the discipleship. You know, you have to. I would say that this is something that's lacking in a lot of liturgical churches strong discipleship program, and then discipline if necessary, which, to, which it basically is lacking. You know?
0: Well, obviously so. it's my hobby horse to, you know, to emphasize allegiance. And uh, certainly I think that's been a lot of what's lacked, right? Is that, um, that the baptism has been understood as a baptism into like salvation for heaven, right? That's about Jesus dying for sins and being the savior. Um, and maybe in some vague tack on sense, Lord, but not not in a central sense because it's not been part of the gospel. And so, um, yeah, and even in confirmation, it's, it's often been a confirmation that, you know, believing Jesus died for my sins or something like that, rather than allegiance right. to the if king. If you were the only
1: person alive, he would have died yeah, for you. Yeah. you rather
0: know? than allegiance to the king. <laughs> and yeah, if we can, right. if we can change that, um, th- yeah, that script, right, that so many people are led through to one that helps them to see, no, no, like this is your oath of allegiance, Right, That's powerful. People, people, even still today, I think, take oaths they make quite seriously. And, um, you know, if somebody was to take um, a very serious oath as part of their allegiance and say, no, I'm, I'm swearing irrevocably, right, that Jesus is my king and I'm going to live in light of him and uh, do my best, I'll fall short of perfection, but th- he's my king, this is the direction I'm going. Um, that's so much more um, potent, I think, for people's ongoing um, commitment and discipleship, Right, um, than just saying like I trust he's my savior. Oh, yeah, and I was just
1: saying we have fraternal organizations where people take blood oaths, and, and they're not going to reveal the secrets, and they're they're dead serious about that. So there's an example of an oath that's serious. We have others that take oaths of marriage, but you know, if it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. So we have problems with oaths.
0: <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. We should we need to strengthen our oath culture too. Good. Well, well, Alan, thank you so much. I've, I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, for listeners, I, I definitely heartily recommend uh, Alan's book. Uh, the, um, the book is Caesar and the Sacrament, uh, published by Cascade 2018. As always, there's a link on our website uh, on script.study uh, to the book for making purchases. Uh, but anyway, i really enjoyed the conversation, Alan and uh, listeners uh, until next time.